Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm Sandeep Rao, if you're wondering who the voice is of that Soapy guy. And it's strange because uh, Soapy seems to be a name that people can pronounce easily when they're um, not really able to pronounce much because uh, Sandeep seems to be overwhelmingly confusing for a few people because my parents decided to give me a spelling with the U. S-U-N-D-W-E-P. As a result, maybe that fortuitous move really bamboozled the algorithms on Google. As a result, no one can find me when they're looking for a comedian named Sandeep. And as a result, all the other Sandeeps get the work, which is great to be anonymous. But uh, I was thinking about this quite deeply because there's a big wave of content now coming from India, which is being recognized internationally. And of course, I'm talking about specifically in the entertainment space. Yeah, it happened with Slumdog Millionaire, but more recently, um, this this movie, which everyone's talking about, it did well at the Golden Globes, I think. It did well at the Oscars. It won Best Original um, Sound? No, Best Original Song. Uh, This, of course, is Natu Natu. I think RRR is the movie. I haven't watched it, but again, Everyone's talking about it. And of course, I don't contribute to forums on the internet because I really don't think my opinion matters for much. And I'd rather do it here because I get more time and no one can actually comment because none of you guys bother to comment and none of you seem to have contrary views to the shit I say. So I appreciate it. It's probably one of two things. Either you really agree with me or you really can't be bothered to take the time to drop an email, show at gmail.com or tweet or retweet or quote tweet or thumbs up or thumbs down or thumbs up the bum who knows but you don't seem to care but anyway i appreciate it i take your apathy as a sign and a vote of confidence because i try to look at the glass um as a pint and that's half full hey so what is going on someone asked me hey it seems that india is putting uh, is, is making leaps and bounds in in all sorts of places is making forays into places where indians never went before and what is going on i i don't have a i don't have a an expert opinion on this but it's more an observation i want to talk about because this this kind of boils down to the languages we have in our country and pre- predominantly me being in Bangalore, growing up in Bangalore, the emphasis was always um, being proficient in English because um, it's also kind of, I talk about this in the show I did at Edinburgh, which was called Blurred Lines, a blind Indian with a British hangover and the word blind, not blind, but British hangover being the operative word. Now, because I grew up in a Bangalore and in a family and in a community where speaking English well was very important and the schools I went to were all English. And it was a standard that we were aiming to achieve, which was being fluent English speaking, but more, I don't think more importantly, but as importantly, or unknowingly English thinking individuals in a Bangalore, in a state, Karnataka, in a country, India, in the 90s and the 2000s. And that seemed to be one of India's strong points when it became the move for companies to outsource their jobs because India has got a huge English-speaking population compared to China and that was the point that made us um, win a lot more deals and get a lot more jobs shipped over here. But I feel, um, I'm not saying that other languages didn't have importance because there are Kannada speakers, there are Bengali speakers, Gujarati speakers, had they, they, they were there, they are there and they're going to be there. But over the past 
five, ten years maybe, I've noticed, especially in the arts, a shift and especially in the youth because there have been a lot of theatre groups in various languages. There have been a lot of comedians in various languages. There have been a lot of musicians, of course, in various languages and filmmakers in various languages. But I don't know what it is, but there seems to be this re-embracement of the language that you um, spoke and and that's the strange thing. A lot of people are like, why don't you speak Hindi? Or why don't you uh, do shows in Canada? Or why don't you do a podcast in Canada? And I totally get it. I possibly can. But here's a big difference. Now, when I speak English as an Indian, uh, and I speak to, say, a person from the UK or the US or from Australia, many of them are quite surprised with my fluency or with maybe even my vocabulary at times. Very, very few people. And they're very, very sort of shocked because they're very, very uh, surprised that we even met. But they're... Um, the, 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 the Indian accent makes our, um, I think, the, the, the command over the language, um, pe people suspect that it isn't good, which I find is, you know, when you're put side by side with a, a, a so-called native English speaker, which I'm a native English speaker because, fuck, I spoke English my whole life. I was taught English, I think in English, but you aren't as native an English speaker, say, as an American, a British person or even an Australian, which is strange. So a lot of the, the countries which um, are sort of the old colonies of the Commonwealth, and you look at especially like Singapore, or you look at um, India, or you look at um, even some African countries, there are people who think in English there. And they, uh, like me, are the ones who kind of are torn between two worlds. Because in one way, we were taught to speak this language so we can kind of present ourselves on the broader stage, on the world stage, and be on par with international um talent or international workers or whatever the, the the game was but we wanted to be these people so we can be on par with that game but on the other side we kind of are also taken away from the people here in in our local communities because we are seen as english speakers and of course a lot of people speak english but here's my thing thinking in english speaking in english they're two different things because you can speak in English and a lot of Indians speak in English, but they think in a language which is not English. They're either Hindi or, as I said, other languages and could be even in certain African dialects, could be even in certain European languages. And there is a difference, I think, being bilingual or trilingual or multilingual is there is a certain language that you think in and then your ability to kind of translate those thoughts into a certain other language and of course there are some people who are extremely special who can think in multiple languages i haven't met them and fuck that's an amazing skill but now i'm talking about this 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 point where you're kind of not torn but you're kind of distanced yourself from or being pushed away from certain groups and you i think this is a problem or rather it's a, it's, it's a thing that's happening where now when I present a podcast or a show in English, I'm automatically compared to a English speaker from a so-called quote-unquote native English speaking country, whether now again, it's those three typically that come up, right? Whether it's Australia, Japan, Australia, the US or the UK. And it seems that you are, you're, you're judged based on the accent to a certain extent. I think that's changing, but also on, 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 on the way you present. And it's a lot more to kind of push through to get noticed because you uh, are automatically sort of categorized as a, a comedian with an Indian accent. And as a result, you're forced to kind of make these um, 
make these jokes to get to that place where you can overcome that and then speak about the stuff that you want to. Now, of course, all this could be bullshit in my own head, but I think this is the case. Um, and as a result now, uh, what's happening is that people are finding empowerment in uh, speaking English and creating content in the language that they're thinking. So as a result, you have a lot of people who are traveling abroad, who are getting their degrees, people in India as well getting their degrees, people who are interested in making films, people who are, and instead of earlier trying to say, hey, but you know what, I get recognized by the festivals in the West and festivals in the East and the West and they get these these Sundance or whatever these festivals are and these are typically, um, earlier the power was, the, the power for the course was English, but now they, they, they're happy to showcase their things and their, their pieces of work in the language that they're thinking and as a result you're seeing so much more authentic ideas and the translation of those ideas and the execution of those ideas coming across so effectively because people aren't ashamed and more importantly people aren't trying too hard to make that into a language that is accepted but rather making the idea in the language that they think in and as a result finding acceptance in the the in in, in the purest version of that idea which as a result, comes out naturally because you're thinking that script, you're feeling that script, executing that script. And I think that's fucking fantastic. And that's why when people say, can you do uh, sh shows in Canada? I'm like, of course, I can speak the language. I can go on stage and do jokes in the language, but the joke is not going to sound good or as good as my English joke, which is pretty shit in the first place, because I have to convert it into a language that I speak, but I don't think in. And as a result, there's a lot lost in translation. I hope that makes sense. I think it made sense in my head while I thought about it. But sometimes, see, if I had to do this in Canada, there would be two iterations before it heard, before you heard it, before it hit your ears. But there's a little less. And I hope uh, that makes uh, the, the information, makes the ideas a little bit more clearer and makes it a little more connected to the listener, make that being you. And I'm glad that there's this huge sort of uh, re- uh, establishment of not being worried about which language but more um, engaged in the idea and how you can communicate that in its purest or most authentic or most natural or most um, original uh, form and language being one of them I, I'm so glad that people are doing that and um, people with great ideas have always been everywhere uh, there are a lot more people with shitty ideas. Fortunately, they, they stick to Instagram and TikTok. But the ones with truly good ideas are not afraid anymore. They're not ashamed anymore. And they're not trying anymore to kind of appease a certain group of critics or people or audience that they thought they had to by presenting their ideas in a language that was globally accepted. But I feel now people with technology, with, with the power of platforms that are distributing content in different languages, they're able to get their ideas in the truest form to people who are willing to consume it. And I think that's fucking fantastic. Anyway, that's uh, my two cents on the issue. And congratulations to those guys from RRR. I think they are really killing it. And that's pretty awesome for the rest of, um, well, regional Indian cinema. And I think... Uh, independent filmmakers and a lot of other artists who are trying to uh, get their stuff out to the world. So well done, boys and girls and grandmothers and grandfathers. Let me talk about my guest today before I ramble on. I've got a very interesting person 
to talk to me today. He's a comedian. Well, we interacted at the Edinburgh Fringe back in 2017. He uh, hosted a show I was on called The Best of the Fringe or something like that. I don't know. It was a name that was clearly getting people in and sending them out quicker. But Dave Shona is a stand-up comic and an author. And in today's conversation, we chat about the landscape of comedy for him in the UK, how things have evolved. And this kind of fits in, right, with language and how you have to say things that need to be said, how you have to say things that want to be heard, how you have to say things that um, might please you but don't please the audience and as a result there's a lot of stuff to navigate there's a lot of stuff to think about there's a lot of stuff to hold back on and as a result do you become more responsible do you become more restricted do you become more accepted do you become more celebrated so there's so many things that do happen and for a person who wants to really look at the career moves there is a certain path for a person who just truly wants to be funny and free there's a different path or lack of and for a person who just doesn't give a fuck there's also a path or lack of so we talk about that in a whole lot more we talk about his book we talk about how he, uh, dave dealt with anorexia and how he accepted the fact that he had to consider that this is a part of him but how he can also move on and help people by writing the book that he did the link to the book is in the description please do go check it out and check out dave's work on wherever he puts it up i think that's typically youtube and you can follow him on social media well without further ado here's my guest on today's episode i hope you enjoy it because i enjoyed chatting with mr dave chawner thank you as always for listening to this podcast till next week goodbye god bless take care of yourselves cheers Dave, <clears throat> excuse me. Dave Chana, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much. I realize that it's been a bit of a hassle getting me here, but you have persevered, which I think props to you for that. Hey, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's always fun uh to reconnect with someone who I shared a stage with. I think it's now closing on 6 years at the Fringe. Uh 6 <laughs> years ago. Yeah, so 2017 that's when I wow. met you at the Fringe and we did those shows at the i forget which room that was the nightclub in the basement which smelled of um centuries of beer <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's not really narrowing it down for edinburgh is it it's always that's... this nightclub that's like falling apart and smells of beer and sick yeah i i felt pretty um you know uh, honestly speaking it was a pretty claustrophobic entrance you walk down those stairs and then especially when shows are leaving and the other shows are coming in you have this entire sort of clusterfuck at the uh, level and you're like oh my god if, if there's a fire here and i'm coming from india i should be what i mean i should be used to this idea but it's, i was scared for a moment there <laughs> i once had and it really opened my eyes a woman in i think it was cabaret voltaire downstairs and a woman did actually have a panic attack because you're absolutely right these really confined old places and people coming in coming out i mean before covid we always talked about fringe flu but when the pandemic hit it did make yeah. a lot of things seem weird and one of the biggest things that I did think was oh my god like that festival must have been a breeding ground for all types of bacteria uh, man you know I, i i think one of the days i had to go from the gig that you were hosting which was i think the best of the fringe or um mm. to another show which was down the road and i really needed to take a shit right and i was like where <laughs> i i can't go back to my apartment so where do i go so i used the 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 toilet at this bar and i was like man they need to up their game this is filthy like i i literally um 
wouldn't be surprised if like a you know a, a virus would originate from that it was so horrific <laughs> <laughs> it's just and it's also like the kind of city i love it and it's part of the grunginess and stuff but it does make me laugh that the, the city kind of gives up even caring and like yeah. yeah that's just take me as you take me you know that's yeah. it no i mean you're right the grunginess but it's borderline <laughs> it's borderline dangerous right with i don't know man <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, but it's it's I nice. You it's... can make it's, you can make a real interesting documentary like about all of the like the worst toilets in Edinburgh. I think that's. Would you say that was the worst shit that you've ever had? It was the it was the most tentative. You know, uh, the, I couldn't <laughs> because my wife was waiting outside and um, she's like, you know, go ahead, just use the dis- disabled loo. And I'm like, I think this is disabled. I think I don't think this. <laughs> Because it was, as you said, I think the people who maintained the place just stopped caring. So there was no toilet paper. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I. It was. It was. Yeah. Let's not go into details. But it was probably, um, in the top three uh, worst kind of locations, if you need to ask. Um. The, the, the. Yeah. Singapore, in fact, also had some pretty crappy toilets. I'm surprised because. Really. Uh, yeah. At some of these bars, and you know, I tried make making an effort not to take a shit in, in, in comedy clubs or bars because it's not really the ideal location. But sometimes you got to go, especially if you're out the whole day doing shows at the yeah. Fringe or, um, yeah, sometimes, you know, and the thing in bars is usually after a few drinks, you don't care, but, you know, it was during the daytime. So you kind of are a little bit more heightened with your senses. So, yeah, I like how this conversation started with taking shits. I, this is brilliant. It's great. <laughs> and, and, and also, you instantly sound so much better traveled than me, like taking a shit in Singapore. And all I've got is like, yeah, I went to Essex the other day. And took a <laughs> hey. match, you know, Very you know, as, you know it, that's the thing in India. People are like, oh, you know, you probably are used. Yeah, there are some really, really, you know, toilets across the board and the average toilet isn't clean of course a lot of people don't even have access to clean uh, not even clean but cl- closed plumbing but since I'm from here I kind of know uh, and th- that's the weird thing you know traveling as an Indian when you, you, you're in India you kind of have a higher standard that you get used to because you kind of you make an effort to at least keep that on your radar right whether it's home whether it's friends homes whether it's hotels or bars you go and go to the nicer ones and you kind of get used to that mm. but when you travel as an indian abroad you're kind of no longer uh, you know not to sound elitist but you're no longer uh, used to that or the, the stuff that gives you that level is much more expensive so then you're kind of using the average plumbing which i was talking to you about before this the average which is usually much higher in countries like the uk the us or other countries in europe and you kind of are like, yeah, you know, it's fine. Like I, the stuff that I kind of uh, would do on a higher level of expectation here, I'm okay to settle for the average there because it's of a higher standard. But it seems to have dropped. <laughs> I, I think that that epitomizes the UK in a sentence. It seems yeah. to have dropped. You know, it feels, I think the UK at the moment feels very much like uh, a sort of uh, celebrity that used to be at the height of their fame and now has started doing Strictly Come Dancing on Ice or, you know, those terrible reality TV shows just to be like, love me, I still am on yeah. telly. That's what the UK is at the moment. Like kind of grasping at straws before going to rehab. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think come back to me in two years and we'll see if the UK is in rehab at the moment. Because I think across the world it is a politically tumultuous time. But what what is it like in India at the moment? Is, is there a sort of sense of cohesion? Because I, I think that's one of the things that the UK is missing is a sense of direction. You know, it's hard to explain in a short sort of uh, mm. 
description because you know it's such a vast um it's such a vast set of variables right because you do um on a sense have a, sen a sense of cohesion otherwise you know one plus billion people if there's no cohesion we'd probably be at each other's necks um but because there's also such a wide divide when it comes to literacy when it comes to socioeconomic uh, measures there is a lot of scope for kind of uh, seeding um, misinformation and brainwashing and kind of pitching mm. groups against each other communal and especially on a religious front a lot of people uh, on the political sort of uh, side are using that to kind of uh, also leverage social media to kind of drive this message of divide so yeah you know if you look at any media outlet which i probably you probably shouldn't because they kind of in many ways kind of sensationalize only the top 10 percent of what gathers eyeballs um so if you look at that whether it's the uk or india i think you get a sense of oh my god the country's up in arms but life goes on you know pretty much if you go to your local vegetable shop he's happy to be alive like just like anyone else in the world you know or you go meet the it's tough of course india is a tough country you know you have people minimum wage you have people who are struggling every day but i think the adversity makes people here and have uh for years made people here a lot more resilient and kind of at least look at what they do have but with social media i feel there's a lot of uh dissatisfaction or possibility for dissatisfaction being seeded in people I think I think that's what that's interesting. There's so many thoughts on that, but I think one of them is that appreciation that does seem to be a word that is sort of missing at the moment. Mm. Of people can always look for what's wrong rather than what is right, mm. and it it is interesting at the moment. I do feel that whether it is the a product of having rolling news or having social media or having so many different outlets with free access to the internet mm. it, it really does feel that um the minority views are getting a lot more airtime than mm. those majority views that make up most people and i think the everyone's of course you know entitled to feeling wronged i suppose but you know there's a sense that everyone has an outburst of anger frustration sorrow and dejection but it almost feels like only that is picked up on as opposed to mm. the other part which is of course you know man everyone has shit happening to them they manage they kind of uh, for the most part live in a middle ground but it seems like we want to pick and that being we being the media or social media pick on only the extremes that's the lows or the highs and make that into either reality show or make that into a an insta reel or make that into a tiktok whatever it's called and it's Another thing I think is people obviously knew that in India there's disparity, there's extreme poverty, there's extreme wealth, um, and there's a lot in the middle. Um, but earlier you'd see, you know, a Rolls Royce next to a rickshaw. But now what's happened, I feel, is a person in the rickshaw and the person in the Rolls has a smartphone. And now with a click of a photo, you can actually tell uh, the person in the rickshaw can see the value, the worth, how much, how kind of vulgar that kind of money is. And that kind of information without... Um, the ability to kind of even go up one notch in life is very, very frustrating, right? Yeah, ab absolutely. And I think I think you nailed it there with frustration because I think you're right that we do polarise emotions such as anger or aggression or, you know, even depression on the other side of that spectrum. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of very murky 
emotions that don't get any airtime. For example, things like envy doesn't mm. generally get talked about that much at all, which I find really, really fascinating. Because, yeah, you're right. We talk about anger or people being a diva, but very rarely do we talk about them being jealous or yeah. them feeling a failure it's just a very interesting thing that, and even self-loathing you know it's such a demonized thing mm. but it's something that you can overcome and that's not and, and people aren't told how to do it they're just told that you know if you're insecure then become secure if you're mm. jealous then you're a bad person i mean it's so black and white right if you're if you're depressed mm. then get it fixed but there's so many as you said nuances to all these things that are the experience of being a human being, right? It's all natural. We all go through it, but we're not told uh, or rather given the kind of tools to deal with it. And that's the problem. That's why we kind of look to influencers or look at um, podcast gurus to kind of say, hey, give me a solution or give me a book that'll help me, which is, of course, great resources. But if you aren't able to kind of identify that, you know, you have these things and you want to fix it, uh, it's very difficult, a very difficult premise to approach, right? It really isn't because I I think that there's just too much stuff. And, yeah. you, know, like, you go back, you know, you go back five hundred years. I've been a farmer. I've been in a field. As long as I got like water, food, my family, and a roof over my head, that's fine. But now, you know, you can't even go to a coffee shop without thinking: Are these beans fair trade? Are they yeah. ethically sourced? Are they are they free range? Have they been beans that have been running around in the field? And then it's like, what sort of milk do you want? Do you do you want dairy? Oof. Do you want oat? Do you want soy? Do you want human milk? It, it's kind of like all of these things. That there's just so many decisions right now. And I think people are really craving simplicity. And when you're looking yeah. at emotions, emotions are very rarely simple. For example, self-loathing. When it yeah. is on the spectrum of like that's being crippling, that's debilitating. But then on the other side as well, if you've got no, if you think you are perfect, you're also going to be an absolute asshole. Absolutely. You know, and, and I, I mean, we come to your book because you address a lot of these uh, things through your experience. But, um, you know, one thing I find is this generation of people who, as you said, there's too much stuff, but there's also a lot of knowledge um, to be had, a lot of information easily accessible, right? So I feel a lot of people know, but they don't really feel. So if you ask someone, they'll, they're quick to kind of define or give definitions of what they're going through. Oh, I'm, I'm anxious. Oh, you know, I, I have this issue. Or they give all the right terms, the right concepts. But how many of them actually feel from within uh, as opposed to kind of just hiding behind these concepts, you know? I couldn't agree more. And there is a huge difference between knowledge and intellect, because I think a lot of people are just gaining all of these things of I should say this, I should believe that, I should tell people I think that. But actually putting that into practice, actually being pragmatic about it, I, th I think it's a really a waning skill at the moment. And the I think again we're getting polarized into like left and right and funny yeah. enough I did a, an interview only this morning and I was like it, I find it quite weird what certain people consider left wing and right wing and actually all we mean is I like this or I don't like that is that kind of othering of like because I don't mm. think global warming is a left or a right wing thing it's got nothing to do with politics yet all of a sudden it's become seen as a more left thing which is odd it's so ridiculous when um, you hear these stories on the news, right? Like, I'll give you an example. It's nothing to do with global warming, but 
just to the level of how low the media has stooped in India. Of course, it's not, it's just an example, which is uh, India, but I'm sure it's there everywhere in the world is I think um, a few months back, I think last uh, November, there's this guy who works with this really, really uh, big company. I think it was either Wells Fargo, one of those kind of financial things. Wow. And uh, this Indian guy and, you know, Indians love uh, a person in a senior corporate position, right? Like when Sundar Pichai became the CEO of Google, everyone's like, oh my God, India, India, like we, we just love celebrating, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's a thing. Like we love it, celebrating academic prowess. Like, oh my God, he's a PhD. Oh my God, he's gone to Harvard. Oh my God, he's working here. And it's, it's just a thing that we've had in our culture, right? So this guy is, I don't know what position at this company, he's traveling back uh, on an Indian carrier, Air India in business class. And this is the story. The new story is that he got so drunk that he actually pissed on one of the passengers. And I'm, <laughs> so he literally got up of his seat and went across to a 70 plus year old lady and peed on her. <laughs> Dude, this is the new story. Now it's of course, <laughs> pretty stupid right but the way the media picked up on it and they're picking up on how she's filed a case and now he's now defending himself and how the lawyer said no he didn't pee on her she has incontinence she pissed herself this is what news minutes are being occupied by now personally i think you and i as comedians we take the comic take like how, what was her feeling right like was she having a nice warm dream of a golden shower and next suddenly she wakes up to this indian mba dude pissing on her like who knows maybe it was her fantasy but it's it's for comedians to kind of decipher, not for journalists to kind of waste, like getting experts on what do you think by the color of his speed that he was feeling? I don't know. It's ridiculous, dude. But, but that, that's what I love as well, is especially when media do that. They take they they literally take an idea and squeeze all of the fun out of it. So you're going Yeah, like, every droplet, it? no pun intended. Yeah. yeah. What's, well, <laughs> <laughs> what's what's the economic impact of this on google and and all yeah. of this sort of stuff and i think that's brilliant did the uh, ceo of air india issue an apology like dude like this guy was pissed i mean i'm sure you've got pissed drunk people at your show and you've got pissed drunk people everywhere and pissed drunk people do what pissed drunk people do uh, but is it necessary to escalate it to this level and then of course everyone taking your talking profiling this guy what does it mean to be young in india the arrogance of the youth like oh my it's just ridiculous dude and i i found it i mean honestly i found it pretty fucking funny but um you know even if you say and i, I think that sort of leads me into asking you the next question um um with all this going on anyone in a flight <laughs> No, I think being in university, we've all done our share of pissing in public places, right? And let's not go into those details. Um, and we've had those. It was silly fun, right? But with uh, that kind of uh, humor now is, uh, where is humor? And I think before we, okay, let's talk about that first. I think, what is your um, sense? Uh, because comedians are typically looked at or were looked at as the people who kind of take these issues, whether it's political, whether it's daily, whether it's cultural, and kind of break it down with obviously their perspective and make it funny, whether it, it suits people, whether it, it upsets people, and let's use the word offends people. It's a thing that needs to be said. But clearly now there is a certain um, realm for humor and those boundaries should not be crossed or it shouldn't spill outside that realm and uh, what's your take on where we are today so i i think in terms of 
so I've got I've got two points on this. I think it's really important to consider um, the sort of the power dynamic. So, like for example, uh, if I was if I was to do a set about what it's like to be partially sighted or blind, mm. I, I'm lucky enough. I wear glasses, but that's not the same as you would have a very different take of that because you are coming from a place of knowledge, of experience, of having lived that thing. So I think that is something that's really important to say. And whether you are punching down or punching up so whether you are sort of being critical of people in power or whether you are actually just bullying people i.e sort of people who are disabled people that don't have a platform or can't stand up for themselves and i always used to say this of you know sort of like i don't believe in cancel culture but i do think that there has become a problem that because it is becoming tribal in how people are thinking I've only noticed this in the past couple of weeks that people are not even becoming offended. I wouldn't even use the word offended because I'd, I'd say that offense is quite a private thing, mm. but, but people are almost like signaling. I shouldn't like that to other people, which I, I do find curious and I always say I think it's better to live in a time where people are thoughtful and are thinking about other people, potentially those that you know can't speak up for themselves. I, I think it's going to take comedy in particular in a very interesting angle. Is it something that you're concerned about as well? Yeah. Um, you know, because I feel... The whole punching up, punching down, I get it, right? Uh, mm. If you are getting, like say in India, the punching down uh, scenario is different from the UK because the circumstances of who you're punching down are different, but it's still punching down, right? But like, for instance, you know, I remember someone telling me at the comedy store in Bombay, this, this, this I think a British comedian came and he made a joke about how, uh, at, at you know at our traffic lights they be, be, that these people who come begging to the car and often it's young girls or children who are sent out to beg and of course it's a racket it's it's an entire sort of uh, organized kind of racket by these kind of so-called mafia kind of people but he did a joke about how something about um, I would say it's more than punching down it was distasteful which I think is a appropriate mm. thing to find in a joke because. It's, it's about her poverty and how he's in a better position and how he can use his better position. And it didn't go well. Now, does it mean he's a bad person? I don't know him, so I can't call him a bad person. But does it mean um, he should be banned? No. But I think the joke was bad and I think the joke was distasteful. And similarly, I think everyone makes mistakes when you're writing jokes because you sometimes cross the line. And that's perfectly fine because everyone crosses the line at their job. And only problem is our jobs are constantly being evaluated live and in front of people all the time. But I, you know, one thing I've been told in the past is, oh, why don't you play the blind card more? Why don't you kind of be the blind comedian that way you get picked up by various groups? You can go on these talent shows and you can play that card. And I'm like, mm -hmm. it was, you know, after it was told to me 10 times, I'm like, maybe there's something in this branding thing. But it never appealed to me because I feel not to sound arrogant, but I feel I'm more than just that, right? I mean, yeah, I, I have this perspective because, you know, I can't see that's that's pretty much one sense, which I don't have, but I can't deny it. But at the same time, I'm not going to celebrate it because um, what's the point, right? I have so much other stuff in my life, which um, 
and yes, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't talk about driving and I can't talk about doing things that sighted people do, but I do have a perspective in, you know, in this world, which does come kind of, um, shaped by a lack of perfect vision or for the most part, lack of a lot of vision, but I'm not going to only harp on that. I mean, it's going to crop up here and there in my set, but I have other stuff to talk about. And I feel that is being taken away from people because they're kind of being boxed into a certain yes. label that people expect them to talk about. And I find that very strange because, you know, it's, it's, it's really cool. If you're disabled, you'll be celebrated on certain talent shows, but that's where you, that's where you belong. Don't go beyond that. And I find that to be a problem. That message should be a problem. I, I think that boxing thing is a really good thing to pick up on. And I'll give you an example of this. I was doing a gig only the other day. And and I, I do worry that this idea of offence or idea of trying to sort of show that moral piety has become a badge of honour. So mm. this is a genuine thing that happened. I was, um, I was emceeing and I went on stage and there was a couple in the front row and it was absolutely lovely. And I was just chatting and I was like, oh, my goodness, like, how, how did you guys meet? And uh, the girl said, because it was a heterosexual couple, the girl said, um, he, uh, I was at the bar and he came over to me to talk. And someone from the left-hand side of the room went, oh, my God. Oh, God. And mm. I was like, and I was like, sorry, what? And she was like, well, that and, and I think she implied something about rape culture or sort of said like, oh, that she's a vulnerable girl in a bar. And I was like, she didn't she didn't say, oh, yeah, I was in a bar. He got his dick out and came over to me. Like, that is offense worthy. But that's how people used to meet. And I find that odd. And that's the really weird part, right, that we use. Like, I remember a friend who's not even a comedian, but because people watch comedy now, I think they, they, they have a right to say people are funny or not, but they go beyond that, right? Whether it's mm. like, if I listen to music, doesn't mean I go tell John Mayer how to write a song, right? Or I critique how yes. a musician should be. I, I shouldn't like, okay, because I, you know, listen to five hours of Spotify. It doesn't mean I can enter a debate with other musicians saying, no, this is what it means to be a musician. That's bullshit. I feel there should be a line where if you don't know too much about it, yeah, you can appreciate a joke or you can get pissed off with a joke, but it doesn't mean how you tell comedians or actors or artists how to do their fucking job. And I think that's the problem now. Everyone thinks they can tell artists how to do their job because that's what they appreciate or what's a, what they don't appreciate. And I think that's where you draw the line because, hey, artists are so different and each person has a different kind of expression and each person has something they find interesting, uh, funny, um, um, revealing, whatever it may be, inflammatory, but that's their right as an artist to do. And the society needs all of it to make it more diverse and inclusive because that's what diversity and inclusion is, right? It's, it's all of it and, and, and uh, none of it should be kind of taken away because a certain person says, oh, that's not my cup of tea, you know? But I, th I think with that inclusion, I think also there should be an inclusion of saying, oh, that's not in my wheelhouse. How, how often do you get people nowadays saying, oh, I don't know about that? And I think the problem with things like social media, et cetera, is that it, it makes everyone feel that they have to have an opinion on everything. Whereas yeah. like with politics, like, I, I don't know. A great example of this, and it sounds like a name drop, it's absolutely not meant to be, but this is relevant to the, the kind of the context 
is that I was um, I was MCing at another club the other day, and Russell Howard was opening. Now he's mm. one of the biggest comics in the the UK and, and very sort of famous over here. He's really exploded, and, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, big time. And he's like going on to do a world tour. Lovely guy, genuinely an incredible comic. And I sort of said, uh, went on, did my bit, blah, 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 and said, ladies and gents, please welcome to the stage, Russell Howard. Now everyone kind of went mad. It was brilliant. I went outside and I, like, as I was walking to the wings, a girl stopped me and I said, oh, come into the green room, have a chat. And she just said, oh, I, I didn't find that joke that you did uh, about Ireland funny. And there was kind of like a pregnant pause. And I was like, okay. And she was like, I just thought I should let you know. And and it was only later when I told someone this, I was like, it's such a weird moment. I was like, you have left the room. So you're not going to see one of the most famous living British comedians that is working in our time just to tell me. And it wasn't like I'm offended. It wasn't you shouldn't say this. It wasn't said you said anything wrong. It was just, oh, I didn't like that joke. And it's such a weird thing to say. And I do feel lucky that do- doing stand it gives you an outlet for all of those emotions. Perhaps that's what's going on. Perhaps people that don't have a creative outlet now feel that social media has given them a platform to just tell people that and by extension they're just going around all the time kind of yeah. it, it just seems so odd just to say oh i didn't like that joke i'm like okay. you know what that just sort of sounds like it's it's almost like you know let, i'm going to say this and at the at the risk of maybe pissing off people but you don't really need okay you need to be smart or you need to be a little strategic with being successful on social media and i'm not saying as a youtube video creator or a blogger i'm saying with reels mm. um you know so I, I feel what's happening is people can become quote unquote famous by replicating stuff out there or by making a quick tiktok reel or an insta reel and get a lot of people to say wow that's hilarious or share it and make these um make these kind of huge leaps in in kind of the, the fame category and then get an influencer status or whatever, right? Not for their talent, but just for being uh, smart about what they do. But mm. then a person who writes a joke doesn't really get much fame because, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a weird world, say. So this person feels, oh, you know what? I'm famous. It gives me a chance or a right to say something about someone else's art or performance or talent. And I think that's absolute bullshit because... You know, if you don't like something, you don't like it. You don't have to, you know, kind of pipe up and kind of give your thoughts. Because I don't think anyone wants to hear like, yeah, you know what? There are musicians who you like and I like who've gone through bad phases, right? Like someone's like, oh, you choose this album is shit. It's not like I'm going to go meet Bono and say, Bono, you know what? (laughs) (laughs) It just just sounds stupid, right? I mean, whatever, like even if I don't like, you know, if I don't like a band, I won't listen to them until someone says, hey, you might like them now. They've evolved into this kind of particular version of what their music is. And it's absolutely fine. It's absolutely fine to bitch about that music with your friends. But does it give you the right to go up to the musician and say, hey, here's a suggestion. Why don't you try electronic from classic rock? Like, come on, right? It sounds ridiculous. But because, say, you and I or other comedians who aren't the Chappelle's of the world or the Ricky Gervais's of the world, we, we are in their eyes... I think because they also know that Netflix and Amazon is not going to buy the funniest special. They're going to buy the special with uh, of a comedian who's got the most followers on, on, yeah. on social media. And that validates that social media is more important or your social media footprint is more important than your 
true talent or your true art or your true way of expressing it. And I think that's a problem. Oh, absolutely. My agent the other day said, yeah, you should go on TikTok. And, and genuinely, it's one of the nicest things that I've ever... In that moment, I went, absolutely not. I don't yeah. need any more social media in my life. And, and yeah. I, I genuinely, I felt a weight lift off my shoulders. And it's I was so like, liberating. I oh, just... I mean, it's beautiful. It, I just hate... I, I felt so pressured, man. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of uh, in the past, fortunately, but kind of being a certain version of yourself for a certain social media platform. And that opens you up like a social media uh, a marketing person say, oh, you know, your jokes won't work on social media. You need to write jokes about this. And, you're, and, and there'll be a point I'm like, oh, sure, I need to change for social media. And I feel like such a jackass even thinking back at what I would say. And, and that's what it is. Like you're pulling your hair, uh, trying to be on every platform, trying to be the quickest to the punch, the funniest, the most compact, the most concise. And what does that do to you? It tears your mind apart, right? Because you're not really Which, doing. All it is, is a popularity contest. Yeah. I've always said, a, a humans don't grow up, they just get taller. And <laughs> to give an example of that, I remember, and it's like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to come across as holier than now. I'm, I'm just as bad as people. Because I think sometimes you get fed this idea so much that you accidentally start thinking oh i want that but it's just been you know these a great example of this was when i was growing up there were the yo-yos became a massive craze and i remember being at home trying to like do this one trick on a yo-yo and i hated it it was like it was like doing homework that was never going to get marked and i yeah. just remember having a conversation with myself and being like well look if, if you're if you don't like doing it, no one's making you do yo-yos day. Yeah. And it's exactly the same with social media. I feel like a lot of people feel they have to be on there because that's what you're told. But actually, if that ain't your thing, that ain't your thing. Yeah. And I feel it's not just the audience. Even the comedians uh, are, you know, I think from what I hear, it's generally like there's this kind of smugness going, you know what, I'm a comedian, I'm a reflection on society. I'm like, come on, you're just a person <laughs> telling jokes, man. I mean, really beyond that, like when you hear people like on podcasts, whoever it may be from mid, mid kind of popular to even really popular, it's, it's just too much noise, right? Like uh, you have these people like, oh, you know, James Acaster took a pot shot at Ricky Gervais and Ricky Gervais then or Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. What does the world think? I'm like, are you fucking serious? This stuff doesn't deserve attention man um because comedians are just supposed to get up there i mean i remember like you know the fringe you see some of the funniest comedians who get absolutely no recognition but then you get some of the people who are so perfectly marketed that they get the best reviews they get the best kind of deals and it has nothing to do with funny it's just about marketing but actual funny is raw funny right i mean i could be completely this off point true. with this but this is what i feel like when when you're on a stage telling jokes What's your job? Not to change society. It's to be funny at that point, right? I, I genuinely can't tell you how like lovely that is to hear. Because the amount of podcasts and stuff that I do where people will start using terms like zeitgeist and all of these kind of things and going like, yeah, well, actually, the true comedian is the reflection back at society in the mirror that they didn't realize was there. It's like... It's not. It's just telling dick jokes a lot of the time, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I do. I do. You can over-intellectualize this stuff in order to you try can make and it make over-important, like right? God, give yourself yeah, a absolutely. more uh, larger kind of kind, uh, like a mantle that you need. Because, like, and that when and when that happens, when 
and I and I think that that's the thing, right? Where typically, all this stuff would be done by non-comedians. Like you know, you'd sit down and break down Bill Hicks' set, going, "Oh, he didn't mean this. He was beyond his time. He was bothered." <laughs> yeah. Oh, you look at Mitch Hedberg. He was so crazy, man. He was in his own head. And then you have people taking LSD to become Mitch Hedberg. I'm like, what the fuck's wrong with you guys? And then you have. <laughs> And then you have the other people who say shit because they know it's going to get people upset. And I'm like, come on, man, don't have to do a feminist bit just because. And as you said something sometime earlier, experience, right? Most of these guys don't have an experience in the topics they're talking about, but they're doing it because they know they'll get that shock value and they might go viral because someone takes a clip and says, oh, this guy said this about this. And oh, my God, he gets his two seconds of fame. So, I, I yeah. honestly, I 100 percent believe that uh there's that phrase and this is wanky there's that phrase the dawning of knowledge is the realization of ignorance and i've noticed that the people that are generally better in their field and i'm not only talking about comedy i'm talking about uh medicine great example of this my mom was uh, a nurse which is great and obviously we need nurses etc um and when uh, COVID and the vaccine was coming around, we were talking about this. And I'd had a conversation the day before with one of my mates who is um, quite a senior surgeon now. And he's uh, written a number of papers. He's like, on this breakthrough for kidney cancer. And I talked to him about the vaccine. And I was just like, it's really exciting. How's it work? And he was like, mate, I, I, I work in kidney cancer. Like, I have, I have literally no idea. Like, I have, you know. I'm not a, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a virologist. I don't know anything. But I was referring to my mom who'd like been a sort of general nurse, which is great. And she was like, well, the thing that people don't realize, and there's a guy here, Chris Whitty, who's the chief medical officer. And she genuinely turned around. And went, the thing that Chris Whitty has got wrong about the vaccine is, and I was like, wait, 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 mom, I'm going to stop you there. He's got the British Medical Academy behind him. He's got every surgeon, every doctor, every epidemiologist and virologist. I think he's got this one covered. And it it does show that the people that are most likely to say oh i don't know are actually probably the ones that are sort of more top of their game because they're not pretending yeah and and you know that's it's, it, we're sitting in 2023 and 2019 i would be that guy that comedian who would kind of stand up for stand up which is absolute horseshit stand up doesn't need champions <laughs> it, it doesn't need people going on news shows or podcasts saying no stand up will survive stand up is about like you know it's not required it's more than 100 years old in this form it's more than 1000 years old as humor it's never going to die it's just i don't know why people take the uh, the title of stand up so seriously you know it's almost like i'm a, and even people like uh, as they, they come to find out you're a comedian. Oh, you're a comedian. How cool. I'm like, it's, it's not really, it's, it's nice. It's, well, I enjoy it, I've but it's not a, cool. I've got a little bit of insight into that. And this is my meek thought on that. And yeah, this yeah, might be completely wrong. But I think the reason for that is also the reason that I, I personally, generally, and I don't get on it too much, but I try never to introduce myself as comedian because mm. that's not something that you do. It's something that you are. And nobody is funny 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It's something you do in the same way that if you're a singer, you don't go around the house going, I'm going to go take a massive shit right now. Like, yeah, of course yeah. you don't. And I think that for so a you're basically saying people, a comedian is what you do, not who you are, right? Uh, yeah, like I, I always say I'm a comic because it's yeah. my job. It's not my identity label. And I think that is yeah. the nub of it, that people can get very pretentious about comedy because me included, you can kind of 
especially with all of this information, be like, who am I? Because people are trying to box themselves off, as we were saying earlier on, of I'm the social media influencer, I am the doctor, I am the stand-up comedian. That's become their identity label. And actually, I think mm. identity is a lot more difficult than that. I want to ask you something. Uh, when the lockdown hit, uh, oh, sorry, the pandemic hit and the lockdown happened, I think the UK was pretty, um, pretty strict. And I remember like a lot of artists struggled. Um, what was your thought when the idea of not performing uh, became a reality? Um, so as a, a person who's um, been doing stand-up, you have this idea of you are as good as your last show and you're afraid that you lose that feeling on stage or at least comedians talk about that, right? Not getting stage time and... Um, not mm. working out material and kind of scared about losing touch. Um, I mean, this is banter within the comedy circles, right? Um, I want to ask you because I have a thought on this, but I want to get your take on it. Uh, what was your, the, the, the feeling when uh, you were told that you can't gig? Well, there's, there's a, there's, and then there's like a, a PRZ answer and the PRZ answer is always like oh my god I felt like my soul had been taken away mm. and that I was wilting like a flat genuinely my honest answer is I felt fucking huge relief mate because I <laughs> kind of was like I was like I don't I don't have to book I'm not missing out on anything this is great obviously there was financial worry there was blah 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 but in terms of actual stand-up as like a craft and an art itself I was like this is fucking brilliant. Like if I, because I can use this as an excuse of like after COVID, if I don't rise up as quickly as possible, because wow, it was a pandemic, wasn't it? I, I just, I felt absolute relief. And I've spoken to so many people that have said that, but nobody wants to be the first to admit yeah. it because everyone wants to say, oh my God, it was like my baby had been taken away. I didn't, I was like, absolutely. I'm going to, I'm going to have fucking piss it up the wall and have a lovely time. Absolutely. And, you know, it's such 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 a nice thing to hear and kind of resonates with what, uh, because you know, that's what happened. 2020, I recorded a special and put it up on YouTube and yeah, I did, didn't do much, but um, I was stuck in that conversation, which, you're, which you just mentioned, right? Like when you talk about stand-up, like it's such, it's such a philosophical extension of your being and you are, you're in this kind of this echo chamber of people. That's a nice word, like a clusterfuck with other comedians who are just like, oh, you know, what we do is important or, and then it goes into the nitty gritties, like why don't we get Netflix or what's wrong with the, with the, with the machine and the industry of comedy. It's such horse shit, man. But, uh, you know, three years later, I haven't done as many shows. I'm, I'm still not back on stage doing public shows. I've done a few corporate shows because the money is good, but I really feel awesome. And I'm not, I'm in no rush to go back on stage because I'm like, you know what? There's no such thing as, you know, this, 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 you know, and I think that comes with a sense a little bit of been doing it and also getting a little wiser as I get a little older is if, if I have to, you know, I have funny in me it, and I don't have to go out back into the world as a stand-up comedian. It can, if I have humor in me, there are multiple ways of expressing it and I don't want to be confined anymore to that label. And that feels so good to say. Oh, mate, I, I've always said this. It's really interesting because I do, I, I, teach comedy courses and stuff now mm. and i always ask people always ask them what do you think is the most important thing for comedy and nine times out of ten it's only ever happened two or three times that people haven't given the answer and it would always be confidence now i personally disagree with 
with that being the thing. But I just think, A, that's really important. That's a really interesting thing that that's what people think is the most important thing about confidence. But then I'll always ask, like, what do you mean by confidence? And generally, people will say, well, being the loudest person in the room, being like that kid at the back of the class. And I'm like, to be honest, for me, that ain't confidence. That's insecurity. Yeah. For me, yeah. genuine confidence is being quiet and is being enough for yourself and not trying to sell yourself to other people or tell people how great you are. Mm. And yeah, so how long have you been doing stand up for? With little to absolutely no success, I've been doing it for 13 years. And that is something that I'm really insecure about. That like That's the same as I, me, 2009 is when I got on stage for the first time. So I think we're around the same time, right? Or maybe yours a little bit. Do you feel a little bit, like when you mention that, is that something that you kind of feel a little bit sort of queasy about? I did. Uh, when mm. I hit the 10-year mark, I was like, what do I have to show? I haven't got any big deal. I haven't got a manager. I haven't got a company representing me. You know, frankly speaking, that was in 2019. Uh, we're sitting four years later and man, I am so glad it's worked out the way it has because yes, of course, you know, you, you get a lot more work when you're represented and managed by someone. You, But along with that, you also get a lot of stuff you don't want to do because now you're a commodity that makes money for a bigger company and you're making other people money through the commissions. And then you're constantly, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. So um, 2020, uh, I think end of 2020, I was approached by this big sort of um, production company slash uh, artist management company. And this guy called me up because he wanted me to do a certain podcast because, you know, they wanted someone who was visually impaired, funny and can host a podcast. It pretty much was like, wait, I, I tick all three boxes, right? And uh, so then he starts getting into this conversation and he says, oh, this will be fun. I think you can really pull it off. This is stories about blah, blah, blah. I don't want to go into details because of signing some stuff. And mm. uh, then he says, by the way, I can manage you as well, man. My company can manage you. And I said, and then he sends over a couple of non-disclosure stuff, the contracts. And and of course, you know, at this point, I was a little wiser. I wasn't uh, the the eager comedian who wants to just sign anywhere and just get more gigs. I was like, you know what, I'm going to be a little bit more discreet about what I take up because I, I really want to spend time with people who matter and as opposed to just running across the country or the world is doing things because others, other people tell me that's what I need to do for my career. Um, so I pushed back on points because it was really ridiculous terms. Anyway, so fast forward to a couple of conversations later, this guy turns around and says, hey, buddy, by the way, do you realize that you don't, I don't, you don't need me. Uh, sorry, I don't need you. You need me because you're a nobody. And if you don't do this podcast, I can get someone else who can pretend to be visually impaired and host the podcast. <gasps> you know, someone else can write the jokes. And trust me, with every rupee you make, I need 99 pesa to promote it. And you are absolutely nothing without me. And just the way he spoke, and I said, I, I, I didn't fight back. I didn't yell. I didn't get, I didn't slam the phone. I said, you know what? Talk as much shit as you want, because until stuff is in writing, none of it matters. It's just you kind of being a prick talking big. So I let him speak his stuff. And then I said, you know what? I'll get back to you. Or I just didn't even say anything. Three months later, he calls again. He's like, what's happening with this? And, you know, I said, no, I, I don't want to go on, uh, go forward with this. But that's the kind of conversation when you're trapped by a contract or when you're signing into things because you only see the 10% of the positive without the 90% of the other bullshit that comes with it, you know? 
And also, there's a, the bigger consideration. Do you want to work with someone that's going to treat you like that? Exactly. And many people don't know that, right? When you um, sign a contract with the big dogs in the industry, they are, of course, it's going to do good for you, but they are also completely in control of your career. And you might sign on as a comedian. The next thing they tell you, go on as a juggler on Britain's Got Talent. You have to do it, right? <laughs> Well, apparently, this I, I caveat this with apparently, but there's a very famous story of Steve Coogan, who plays Alan Partridge, who's quite big out here. Was very, huh. He was doing the Pleasance Reserve years ago, and it was Addison Cresswell who headed up um, off the curb, I think it was, and, and basically... Steve Coogan like had a real coke habit. This is all third-hand information, right, uh, right. not being slanderous. Like, and apparently he had a real coke habit, and he ended up having heart arrhythmia and going to hospital during the middle of the fringe. And apparently, Addison Cresswell turned up, or someone. I, I mean, I'm not 100. It was him, but anyway, his agent turned up and said, "Oh my god, are you all right? I heard that you're in hospital." And turned up to the hospital bed, and Steve Coogan was there, and he was like. Yeah, man, like, you know, bit scary, but, you know, it's the nerves that got to me. And then apparently their agent turned around and went, good, well, you're going to get out of the fucking hospital bed because we've sold £14,000 worth of tickets. And if you're not that show, then you'll be paying me that. And you're like, wow, when the chips are down, who's really got your back? And I I think it's, I've always said this, I would 100%, and this actually comes from my partner rather than me. I would prefer to work with people that I like and people that I enjoy with rather mm. than we always tell kids, what's your dream job? What do you want to do when you're older? I honestly think the question should be who and what are the sort of people that you want to work with when you're older? Because you can do the best. I, I remember years ago, it's a really boring story, but I used to, I got my dream job in radio when i was Mm. 23 Mm. and i honestly i was on silly money for back then and i was terrible at it Mm. and i was miserable and i think i was that was a real sort of wake-up call for me to be like it's not the job it is the people yeah no man i think that's such a an important lesson because when you're in that situation, you're like, nothing's working out. Everyone's going ahead in their career. People are getting more yeah. tours. People are selling more tickets. They're getting more representation. They're getting more digital projects. They're getting more brand work. When I look back now, I don't know if it worked out. None of it was because of my intention, because clearly if it left to me, the design left to me, I would have made a total tit of myself and signed up with everything. <laughs> but when I look back now, I'm so glad it's panned out the way it has, you know, because... <laughs> Yeah. If I do decide to get back on stage, I'm going to do it through all those learnings and, uh, you know, and maybe even wipe the slate clean and just kind of learn what I did from those 13 years of stand up and kind of approach it with a fresh eye and kind of remember, you know, what we just said, what we just said, be funny. That's all fucking matters. Not being the next goat or being the next sheep or whatever you want to fucking be and saying, you know, how would Chappelle say the joke? And oh, and the first thing I would do is stop listening to comedy podcasts if I want to get back on stage because it's just a mind fuck, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Because I think this is the problem. Everyone pretends that they have the answers. And, mm. and I'm saying that as someone that's like postulating that that's my answer. I know nothing. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm an I'm a professional idiot. That's literally <laughs> all I am. So don't you know? Don't come here for answers. Go and ask. Go and ask a sort of the, the Dalai Lama or someone because I'm, yeah. I'm not someone that comes up with answers. I can barely formulate questions. I want to ask you, what does uh, comedy do for you? 
Very, very good question. And I think the honest answer is it has changed over time. Because when I when I first I got into comedy because I was obsessed with watching it live. Mm. And what it did for me then was make things manageable. I loved watching stand-ups talk about being single or lonely or broke or a freak because i was like oh my god you're kind of reframing that idea you're actually like saying i don't fit out i don't fit in and that's okay um and i think that's what comedy did for me back then and i think over time it's it's like so many things of once it becomes your job, it can take away that enjoyment. It's like someone once told me, if you're a chef, you eat shit. Because if you're in a kitchen for 18 hours a day, you don't want to go home and do like grilled lobster. You're just going to have beans on toast or quavers, you know? So I think what comedy does for me now is, if I'm entirely honest, pops up but in the most unlikely of places this is why most comedians go and see weird shows because it's just something different you know what i mean a lot of comics will go and see surreal stuff that most general audiences will go like sorry what why is he talking into a pack of bacon whereas like comics are like this is so different this is the best thing ever so i think i think what it does for me now is i think it's like a little a, a little kind of reminder that you know things aren't don't always have to be so serious why what's it do for you that's a really good question um uh, i think that's another strange thing that i've realized now is that you know when i did get on stage for the first time what comedy served was it served to get me the attention i wanted um mm. which it's great for a little while, but it kind of gets old and I'm glad it got old pretty quickly. Um, at least quickly in the sense, you know, as years go by five, six years, <laughs> but, um, it then served to kind of help me talk about and make, come to terms with kind of, uh, my visual impairment and kind of being okay, talking about it publicly and also being comfortable saying this is what I have and not kind of brushing under the carpet and not apologizing for it. Um, yeah, I think those are the two main things, but you know, I did enjoy the laughter, but I never got to a place where I took absolute satisfaction from the things I was saying. So yeah, it, it, you know, it's hard saying that because it almost says like, oh shit, that means 13 years, which is basically massaging your ego and coming to terms with their disability. It sounds pretty fucking shallow, but I would definitely say that the, the making, uh, kind of using the opportunity of, or the excuse of writing material, um, to look within and kind of just address all the things that I hadn't, if nothing else, I think that would be the biggest sort of thing that comedy has done for me. And that's why I've kind of gotten to a place now where I don't need it for that. So I need to figure out what I'm going to use comedy for going forward. I think for a lot of people, it is a great excuse to say silly things in order to, you know, like for me, I think that's actually a really good point of like, I remember when I started stand up, it was an excuse to do things that I would normally be more embarrassed about. You know, you hear people talking about like, oh, I was on a station platform the the other day and I, I started talking to a dog and you know it, it's an excuse to do that like, this could be a stand-up set no. but I also think 
and and you talked brilliantly about comedy podcasts. One of the best things I ever heard was Greg Davis was on a, po- a comedy podcast, and he said something that he said that comedy kind of almost gives him for him an outlet. And he said, and I think this is absolutely true of me, and it's something I don't like admitting, and it is horrible. I know that because I do stand up comedy, I kind of feel that you you get that attention, you get that ego massage, whatever. So. I know that if I didn't do stand-up, if I went to the pub with mates, I would try and just take over. I would mm. try and be the funny guy. Whereas, like, I kind of think that comedy kind of gives me that outlet so that I can go to the pub with mates and sort of just sit and chat and laugh. I think that's also one of the things that a lot of people can feel is a bit of an affront of, like, I'm not going to laugh at them because that's almost appearing weak. That's appearing that mm. they're above. And I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to play those games. I, I was totally that. I totally uh, recognize myself in what you just said because that was the role I happily took up, right? Because I was I was using every opportunity to get the attention. And when that's your focus, the stage isn't enough, right? Because you want to get off stage, yeah. be funny uh, than the other people. You want to put down others so you look more like you're shining. And... It's just a never-ending beast that eats itself up, right? It's it's kind of all-consuming. And honestly speaking, you know, I I, I really um, I'm glad I'm saying this now because I'm no longer that guy. I don't want to be recognized wherever I go. I want to have a you know a quiet evening with my wife or with close friends, and I really do enjoy that. Not like I ever lived a life where I had people queuing up to get my selfie or autograph, but even the little bit of uh, attention I got, it it served its purpose then it's kind of burnt out fortunately now and who doesn't like attention of course but not to that level of um this endless kind of need to kind of fuel this ego but yeah i'm glad that again i'm glad that all of that happened because it has led me to where i am today and i'm really excited of um uh, with what i'm going to or how i'm going to view comedy going forward because hopefully it's just at this place where i just do it because i like telling funny shit and if it means not as a stand-up but just maybe a monologue or a spoken word or whatever the fuck it is, I, I'm excited to do that because I finally want to get to a place where I enjoy my material. And it I saw glimpses of that in 2020, before, just before all this stuff happened, where I was telling stuff from life as opposed to making up stuff saying, what if this situation happens mm-hmm. in this situation? Maybe it's funny. I wasn't create. I wasn't exaggerate. No, that's not the right word. I wasn't making up shit because I thought it's funny. I was actually talking about stuff from life and kind of just peppering it with a little bit of, 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 you know, storytelling touches to make it uh, appropriate for the stage. That's amazing. I'm very, like, genuinely, that sounds more exciting to me to listen to than someone talking about train toilets. Yeah. Unless, of course, that's happened to you. <laughs> In which well, case, yeah, you have to talk cool. about Oh, man. Uh, you know, um, so... It's 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 intriguing that you, as a comedian uh, or a person who's as a comic, let's call it, you you so you've written this book now, and that talks the kind of the documents your 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 life and also you coping, uh, you you say with depression and with anorexia, right? Yes. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, what what was that? like like where did that sort of originate your your I, I would I wouldn't want to dramatize when say your battle with depression, but your your awareness that something is uh, affecting you, keeping you down, keeping you in this loop of thoughts which aren't healthy. And as a result, even the other disorder, which is anorexia, it is quite, uh, you know, people think it actually happens to supermodels, but it's actually a very sort of scary 
place to be. So can you talk, talk me through that? It, it's really interesting because I think we always sort of expect people who have problems with their mental health to just innately know. And I think, you know, actually like people, um, if you've got a hearing impairment, let's say, it's quite difficult to know what's normal. And it's only like over time people will go can you hear that and you're like well i can't i can't hear that and over time you realize that things that used to be loud aren't so and it was exactly the same i suppose with my brain that i realized uh that i hadn't you know i hadn't felt okay for well the honest answer is i realized that i got depression when i went to a mate's house and they were doing MDMA and I never did, never did any drugs, never like, you know, I sort of, I tried a spliff when I was 17, didn't work for me, not interested. And at that point in time, I was very, very anorexic. And I always said that I knew that anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. And it was a passive suicide attempt. And I remember them sort of saying, oh, do you want to do MDMA? And I was just like, no, because in case it goes wrong. And then I just had this thought of like, well, what happened? If it goes wrong, you've achieved your goal. So I took it, which was very out of character. And it made me realize, oh, my God, this is what happiness can feel like. And I'm absolutely not condoning uh, drug use. I'm certainly not promoting or encouraging it. But what I am saying is it's a very common trope for a lot of people that are struggling with their mental health. Something happens outside of their usual realm to put it into some sort of focus for them and make mm. them realize, ooh, things are a little bit off. That is a different shade to life that I never knew existed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the, when was this? When So what, what, what was the kind of uh, thing... Uh, that helped you sort of guide you and kind of give you some sort of support um, to, to, of course, I mean, look at your situation to kind of make sense of it, to kind of kind of pull you and guide you in the right direction. What, what were the things and the tools you used? So I think for me, this was, I, I started developing the anorexia when I was like 17, 16, 17. And it took ages to take hold because I didn't realize what I was doing was abnormal and it was only when i was like 2021 20, and i was working down in this um it's this boarding school down in somerset and i remember that they catered for all of your food and there was no calorie count there was nowhere to prepare your own food and it was miles away from the nearest village and i was just amazed how much i freaked out and i started setting my alarm in the middle of the night to do exercises i started skipping meals and then i started binging and hiding food and then taking things to try and get rid of that food and people noticed and it was only until one of the teachers said that i've been in therapy for bulimia three times have you ever thought you might be anorexic because that's what this seems like I, and that was the first time anyone asked me rather than told me mm -hmm. and i didn't do anything about it until i was 23 24 because i never felt ill enough and i think that's a very common trope for mental health is that people feel that you have to be absolutely down and out to get it sorted out which kind of grates me because we don't take that with physical health you don't have to be absolutely you know unfit before you start going to the gym why yeah. do we always do that for our mental health 
Well, Dave, you know, I think I'll let you go because you have this coming up. Uh, so people listening, if they want to pick up your book or they want to follow your work and catch your set online, uh, or if they're in the UK, catch you live, uh, can you drop those details before we sign off? Thank you so much. Yeah, well, the book is called Weight Expectations because uh, I originally wanted to call it The Real Hunger Games, but that wasn't allowed. So it's called <laughs> Weight Expectations, all about anorexia. Uh, and you can get that. And then all the details are davechorner.co.uk. And thank you so much for having me on My pleasure, this Dave. podcast. Yeah, it's absolutely been a pleasure chatting. And I hope we can meet again in the near future. Yes, I would love that. And don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. Hey, <laughs> take care, Dave. Talk to you soon. Good take luck. Care. Bye. See you later, mate. Bye. Bye. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.